welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. I like to do is people watch. I like to go places where there's crowds and behold the oddity of humanity. Um, and look at look at us. Observe us. Sometimes make snarky comments about us. I also like to nature watch. I like to be out in the woods. I like to watch the animals. I like to observe how nature functions. I am a hunter, so every so often I like to kill one of those animals I'm observing. But, you know, it is what it is. But see, one thing that I find is like, as you juxtapose the two together, is that humans are really interesting animals. Strange, in many different ways. But I think one of the things that I find is so interesting is I kind of look at us and then look at like animals and nature and how they function is that we are our creatures that from the, the beginning of our existence throughout all of our cultures, throughout all of our different societies, we, we, we create laws for ourselves. We have ethical systems and standards And yet, even though we create those things for ourselves, none of us keep them. Religious or not. I mean, all the other animals, they kind of function, especially the herd ones in their own kind of ecosystem and and, and their herds and their kind of communal realities. And they they have their kind of hierarchy and rules and systems and, and they kind of function within that and just seems that what they naturally do and are is the kind of social contract that they have among each other. Yeah, we, we have our social contracts and we all break them. Constantly. I find that odd. And in all the different philosophical explanations and different anthropologies and understandings of societies and laws and everything else, I think what makes the best sense to me of this odd situation that we find ourselves in is that old, old story at the beginning of Genesis. A story that I think sometimes we lose track of what is important and what it's conveying by getting bogged down into different arguments about datings and times and all these different things. But ultimately what Genesis is doing is it's depicting a truth about the reality of why we are in the situation that we are in. Why we're the way that we are. And you see that if you go back to Genesis, our, our, our ancestors, Adam and Eve, that in their fall, they did not fall because they necessarily wanted to do bad things. 
They wanted the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to be arbiters of truth. They wanted to be able to determine the social contracts, the rights and the wrong. But in so doing, as they continually tried to establish good and evil for ourselves, we couldn't even keep the very thing that we established. And so whenever you look at us as a people and throughout the history of of social contracts and society, if we can't even keep the standards we set for ourselves, standards that we set because we think that we could possibly achieve those standards, if we can't even adhere to those things. I mean, even our own personal standards and our New Year's resolutions and the things that we set for ourselves that are most important that we are going to keep to, we can't even keep those ones. But in light of that, I think that that's why God's law becomes an even greater challenge for us. Not only because we don't keep it, but also because it grates against our fallen nature. It, 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 it hits on that reluctance that we all have deep inside towards submission and trusting dependence upon God. And so, in this confusing relationship that we have internally to the law, I think makes this passage today that much more challenging. But I also think that this passage today is incredibly important because I have found that one of the things that is so disastrous and so is missing so often within our churches, especially today, and I'm seeing ramifications of it left and right, and I'm using left and right in the real sense and figurative sense, that it's all over the place, regardless of where you are, is a complete misunderstanding of the role and the nature of the law. And so for today, I I just want to focus on the end portion of our reading. And I will try to be quick, but I also feel that as a church starting out, it's critically important that we understand these things. They're often confused and complex. So we're going to look at 17 through 20 and look at the law upheld and fulfilled And then a righteousness the law cannot produce. In verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Whenever he says law, he's referencing to that which is understood as the Torah or the Pentateuch. The law in that time, as he was speaking of it, is speaking of the law of Moses. And the prophets are the early and the later prophets, or as we sometimes break them down, as the major and the minor prophets. Essentially, by saying the law and the prophets, Jesus is saying the whole of God's self-revelation in Scripture as received up to that point. And then he, but he says in that, do not think or do not suppose that I have come to abolish those things. 
Why would he say that? Why would anybody suppose that he did come to abolish these things? We see through the life and the ministry and the teaching of Jesus, many suppose that because he had a ministry and a teaching of grace, of forgiveness, of God accepting those whom God is not supposed to accept because the law says that they should be condemned. And so because of the ministry and the message of Jesus, many would have supposed that he is coming because of the message of grace to, to abolish the law. St. Paul had the same accusations continually against him. That's why as Paul would preach the gospel and proclaim the gospel, there was always this Pauline phraseology of, you think this, that's not what I mean. By no means. Here's what I really mean. But in trying to clarify that why what he's preaching and proclaiming, he is not abolishing or throwing away God's righteous demands. He also never washes down or backs down from a clear proclamation of the gospel of grace. He never moves into saying, oh, okay, well, I guess we need to have a little bit of law light. But because of the message, some supposed that he was trying to abolish the law or go against it. And then Jesus says that he has not come to abolish the law, but he has come to fulfill the law. This idea of fulfilling the law is not the same as abolishing it. That's the little but there. It's not, I'm here to get rid of it or to replace it. But it's also not the opposite either. He's not saying that I have come to keep it intact exactly as it is. No, he says, I've come to fulfill it. To fulfill means to bring about the ultimate meaning of a thing. To accomplish that which it was given to do or manifest. You fulfill a mission by doing or accomplishing or embodying the very thing that the mission was there in the first place to do. If you look through the Gospels, they understood the Gospel writers to see Jesus' entire life, ministry, message as fulfillment. As fulfillment of the Scriptures, as the fulfillment of the Law and the Prophets. So we read during Christmas time, Mary's virgin conception of Jesus was said to be in fulfillment of the Scriptures. It says Jesus... His parents take him to Egypt to hide in fulfillment of the scriptures. Herod's killing of the male Jewish children in the region was in fulfillment of the scriptures. Jesus returning to his homeland of Nazareth was said to be in fulfillment of scriptures. A few Sundays ago, Jesus retreating to Capernaum, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said. You see that they say that Jesus is speaking in parables. Jesus is healing of the sick. The events that happened around Jesus as he 
was crucified, was said, was all to fulfill the scriptures. This is because all of the law and the prophets had a purpose, and their purpose was not to direct people back to them, but to point people forward to the reality that was going to fulfill what they themselves could not complete. It's what Jesus said to the couple on the road to Emmaus, where he went through all of the law and the prophets, and says, all of this points to me. All of this is about me. See, the problem is not the law. The problem is that we misunderstand the purpose of the law. Scripture makes very clear that the law was not given to make us righteous. The purpose of the law was not to make us better followers of the law. To make us great lawyers. Because if that was what the law existed for, then it would be as if God is just helping us in our own rebellious self-determination. In the garden, you wanted to be autonomous and you wanted to be a rule unto yourself. Well, here's some rules so that you can then do it yourself and follow after. But instead, we see throughout the scriptures, we see in Romans, that Paul says that the law does not produce righteousness, but reveals unrighteousness. I love how Paul says, you know, this law says thou shalt not covet But whenever I read this, all it did was make me want to covet that much more. Like it reveals our rebellion. I would say like the law has the impact of having a hole in the wall that you walk past day after day and you could care less about it until a sign goes up that says do not look. And then all I want to do is look through that freaking hole. Or in Galatians where Paul says that the law was given as a guardian. Another translation is essentially a nanny. To keep the people until Christ was revealed. We see in the prophets, we never actually think, I think, as deeply as what some of these these statements are. Where God will say to the people, I do not desire sacrifices. I do not desire fill in the blank, the fasting, or all these different things. This is what I desire. You keep the law, and yet you do this and this. But the things that he says I do not desire are things that are commanded in the law. Because the law was there to point towards something even greater that they were using the law to actually pervert. In Deuteronomy 30, I find something extremely interesting. After God, through Moses, lays out the fullness of the law of Torah, In Deuteronomy 30, there's a prophecy. After laying out all the law, God says to them, after all of this, the promises and the judgment, the reward and the punishment, you will not keep this. And you will be cast out of the land and sent into exile. 
Right after giving the law, he says, this will not work. But then he makes a promise. He says, one day, I will come for you. And when I do, I will circumcise your hearts. I will give you new hearts. And then you will love me. And then finally, you will obey me. You see, from the inception of the law, the law in all of its forms, however you want to break it down, the ceremonial, the civil, the ethical, the communal, the moral, all exist to point beyond itself to a greater reality that it cannot accomplish. Because the problem is, is that not that we have bad actions, but because we have jacked up affections. Not that we don't get our act together, but that we would prefer to rely on ourselves to get our act together than to fall on our face in utter dependence upon the mercy of God. So Jesus is saying that which the law points toward, the reality for which the law even exists, the thing that it directs us to but cannot produce, That's found in me. It's quite a bold statement. Then in 18 through 19, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, the thing is, is Jesus' message of grace and forgiveness, his proclamation of fulfillment of the law, does not come by way of minimizing or easing the demands of the law. Jesus being full of grace and compassion is not the same as Jesus being the cool parent that comes in and says, hey, I got it. You guys just do whatever you want now. It's all good. And some of that stuff's kind of harsh anyways, and it's antiquated, so we're not going to hold to any of that stuff. That's not what Jesus came and did, but actually the opposite. He says, not a dot or iota. Some translations, not a jot or a tittle. These are references to the two smallest of Hebrew letters, just little markings that are easy to pass by, kind of like a, a comma. But what he's saying by that is that you cannot take even one part away. But this also means that if you are under the law, you're under the whole law. This is something that we don't understand, I think, as modern Western people. Because our modern approach to everything is to break things down and compartmentalize those things into different components and parts. And then we have our flow charts and our graphs and we have it all mapped out and everything else. And so we have this a, a, a way of just breaking things into smaller and smaller and smaller elements and categories. We dissect and divide. 
So in a more historic, reformed approach, the law is broken down into moral and then civil and then ceremonial. And then, see, the civil and the ceremonial don't apply anymore, but the moral does. Or we break it down in in all different ways. And sometimes it's like, well, these ones are actually not applying now, but these ones do. But then all, and, and we like to kind of pick and choose and break it all apart. That's not how the Jewish mind works. To accept the part is to accept the whole because the whole is the thing itself. We like to think of ourselves as I have a mind and I have a spirit and I have a body and they're all kind of different parts of me. In the Hebrew mind, you are you. And when you break that up, you cease to be you. In the same sense, when we see that the false teachers in in Galatia, when they came... And we're telling the, the, the Gentile believers that they needed to accept certain aspects of Torah to be able to be acceptable to Christ. Paul corrects them and uses this very argument to say, if you have to, if you bring back one portion of the law, then you are now under the whole law. He says, if you accept circumcision, then you, are now, you now must be under the whole of the law. And guess what, buddy? If you are, you're condemned. Because you can't break it down or break it apart. You can't change one dot or iota, but then Jesus also says that he has fulfilled every dot and iota. He has not come to dissect it and break it down into more manageable or palatable pieces. To give us a little grace to help us out in our fallen edemic desire to create for ourselves a law that we can manage on our own. As he says, that least in the kingdom is the one who relaxes even the least of these commandments. You wouldn't think of it, what he's actually doing here is condemning moralistic preachers and teachers. Whether fundamentalist or progressive. Because the thing is, is if you are under the law, even a reduced law, that no matter how you approach it, you must now minimize the law to a point in which you can at least appear to keep it. Because our righteousness is dependent upon our adherence to the law. And so even the most hardened legalist fundamentalist that seems so harsh usually focuses only on those external signs and evidences that they can try to appear to keep. But don't emphasize many of the other commands and calls of God's righteousness that they can't keep. But if the law is not abolished or replaced, but fulfilled, there's no longer a need to reduce, compartmentalize, or minimize the law. To create an achievable law to motivate us to obedience or bring us to perfection. And it's important, as I said, that was never the purpose of the law in the first place. But in Christ, if we truly believe that every dot and iota is fulfilled, 
then we can hold firm to God's righteous commands, even those ones that leave us condemned. So we have the law upheld and fulfilled, and now the righteousness the law cannot produce. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a hard one to read. Because in appearance, I mean, I know all of you pretty well, not to speak ill, but we're all condemned. Not to air dirty laundry, but. <laughs> and one thing that I see is common is that there's, there's often a misrepresentation of the scribes and the Pharisees. Usually the scribes and the Pharisees, first of all, are never us. But also then we kind of try to portray them in a way that then helps us soften the blow. But they were a people who were deeply devoted to trying to maintain their distinction as a holy people of God by trying the best that they can to obey the whole of the Torah. St. Paul said to the church in Philippi that as a Pharisee, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. He didn't say that tongue-in-cheek. He doesn't correct himself on that. He says, no. With regard to the requirements of Torah, I was blameless. And yet he stood condemned because he did not have the righteousness that can come from Christ alone. See, because the righteousness we are called to is not the righteousness the law can produce. It's a righteousness that is found in the reality that the law points towards. The fulfillment of the law. The righteousness of Jesus. And it is his righteousness that surpasses even the greatest of scribes and Pharisees. And this righteousness does not come from our autonomous effort to uphold certain rules, but through union with Christ, returning to a place of utter dependence upon God. Isn't that kind of brilliant? The righteousness that we need, our own efforts could never produce, but the problem is, is we try to produce it with our own efforts because in the fall, we sought to be autonomous from God. And the only way to be restored to that righteousness is to let go of those efforts and have to fall back on our face as dependent creatures, utterly dependent upon God. See, the law reveals, in some ways mitigates the symptoms of the fall, a rebellious desire to be a law unto ourselves, desire for autonomy, but does nothing to deal with the root cause. Our unwillingness to submit in absolute dependence upon God as limited, contingent creatures. But through the gospel, in Christ, the purpose of the law is fulfilled and the root of the fall is reversed. 
Because our hope is not in a righteousness of our own produced through willing ourselves to conform to rules, but through a righteousness that is not our own, received through absolute dependence upon God's grace. A righteousness that is foreign to us, but then is made our own. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's prefigured in Father Abraham, where it says, And Abraham believed God and was accounted to him as righteousness. It was prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah, In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and his name shall be the Lord is our righteousness. As Paul wrote to the church in Rome, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. Or as he wrote to the church in Galatia, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And not only are we given a righteousness that is not our own, but is foreign to us, received by faith, but also by the very same grace, we become that very righteousness that is proclaimed over us. St. John says that when Christ appears, when we see him, then we will actually be like him. As St. Paul says to the Colossians, that not only are we reconciled to God and Christ, but through Christ we will be made or presented holy and blameless in the end. We will embody that righteousness that far surpasses what the law could ever produce. And so, as you see how this kind of plays out in understanding the role and the function of the law, I just have two quick applications for us as a church and how, how we function our ministry and message. First, is that we will and do have a singular message, which is the gospel of grace. Jesus. Not Jesus plus another agenda, not Jesus plus. It's Jesus and his work on the cross. Isn't that what we just read from St. Paul in our epistle lesson? He said, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But as a church who is rooted in grace, And our message is the proclamation of God's grace. It does not mean the minimizing of the righteous commands of God, nor our sinfulness and brokenness. I think that's where we get it confused and mistaken. To be a gracious church is then to be a church where we we don't talk about sin or any of those things. 
I remember hearing a megachurch pastor who was very, very prominent. His congregation is a little bit larger than ours. And he was talking, and whenever he was talking, he said, well, I don't, I don't preach about certain things because I just want to focus on grace because I, those things make people feel bad about themselves. And I'm like, dude, you have a big congregation, but you don't understand the gospel, nor do you understand grace. Because the thing is, is even the most feel-good, positive message has legalism at its core. Jesus loves you because his his righteous demands aren't that great, and you're essentially a good person. The problem is, is that then you're still feeling that because I'm a good person, then Jesus loves me. And then when you go home, and those dark recesses of your mind, and you realize, I'm actually not that good of a person... Your hope is lost. And so then you're essentially a good person. And then the rest of the message becomes a way of having a few tips on even becoming a better person. In our own tradition, and I don't want to speak, speak ill, but one of the things within our tradition of, of those that... that we had separated from those within the Anglican Church of North America. One of the things that happened throughout the 70s is they removed the prayer of humble access. You guys know that prayer? Some of the more progressive type um, removed it and they would jokingly call it the prayer of humble excess. It was removed because it unnecessarily made us feel bad about ourselves. No. See, preaching the gospel of grace does not mean minimizing the law and, and, and the, the effects of sin. Preaching the gospel of faith, grace is embracing the whole law and the full commands of God and recognizing that thanks be to God, it is through grace that we are going to be made righteous because we will never be able to uphold that. And so here, before we come and receive the elements of the Eucharist, we pray, we do not presume to come to this, your table, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold mercy. Because as much as we preach grace and preaching that grace, I'm also not afraid to say, I'm pretty sure we're all messed up. And we're not as good of people as we try to appear to be. But Jesus is making that right. Secondly, and finally, Jesus fulfilled the law, every dot and iota. So our sanctification, our spiritual formation, our perfection does not come through pointing back to the law or re-implementing some version of reward and punishment tied to the law. As we saw, Jesus said, we have no right to cut apart the law or throw out some and enforce others. We have no right to create a law light that is more palatable and achievable to us. We are not allowed to look at our society today and whatever is the zeitgeist of the moment and say, well, these are the important ones. And everybody messes up on these. It's okay. 
Our perfection is not through conformity to the law out of a promise of reward or threat of punishment, but conformity to Christ through grace, the one who fulfilled the law. If you notice through the New Testament epistles, whenever there is instruction and correction given to the church, it is never through pointing back to the law of Moses. Search it. Never happens. You know how the church is corrected and directed and confronted? By reminding the church of the gospel and who Jesus is and calling the church to live in light of the gospel, to conform to the likeness of Christ. If there is arrogance and backstabbing, let me remind you of Jesus who humbled himself to serve others, so then be likewise. Because Jesus has fulfilled the law, so the fullness of what righteousness is is found in Jesus, not by going back to the law of Moses that was simply there to point towards Jesus. Because pointing to the law of reward and punishment ultimately feeds the atom in us, fixing our attention upon ourselves. Because really, I'm looking at what I'm doing and what I must do so I can either save my butt or get a better reward. But the New Testament reminds us over and over again to get our eyes off of ourselves and fix our eyes to Christ Jesus, who is, as it says, the author of perfecter of our faith. Fixing our hope, fixing our gaze upon him. So Jesus fulfilled the law and calls us to a righteousness that far surpasses the law. For it is a righteousness that the law pointed toward but could never produce. This righteousness does not come through following the footsteps of Adam and Eve by gritting our teeth and trying to bring ourselves into conformity, trusting in our own ability, but instead comes through turning our backs on that age-old attempt at autonomy and throwing ourselves before God, trusting in his mercy, his grace, his righteousness, and his promise that through him we will be made perfect as he is perfect, fixing our hope, trust, and focus upon the one whom all the law and prophets point. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. The joy of my heart of my tongue Thy free grace alone from the first to the